This is an interview with Billy Goat on Sunday, March 28th, 2021 by Nick Perkel. Now, can you tell me the first musical-related writing of yours to get published? Yeah, well, that's kind of why I started Doomed in Stone. Well, not exactly, um, but that's how it ended up working, is Doomed in Stone ended up being the outlet for my writing and for a lot of other people's writings as well. Um, but originally, I've never written any type of music journalism before this started in 2013. Were you involved in any zines, alt-weeklies, or student newspapers when you were younger? I wish I had been. Um, when I was younger, I had some learning disabilities, and we didn't call them that in the 80s. It was just kind of, you know, the teachers thought I was just misbehaving. Um, first of all, I needed glasses, and they didn't figure that out until close to the fifth grade. So I'd gone, you know, grades one through five without seeing the, the chalkboard or being able to see what was going on. And that caused problems. And then it was later determined I had attention deficit disorder. Uh, but of course, my mom didn't believe in any of that. So she pulled me out of school because um, she thought the government minds were going to experiment on me with their drugs and such. And uh, she started homeschooling me. And that's actually where I developed an interest in writing, um, mainly through her tutelage. She's taught me everything I know about writing style, grammar public speaking, uh, the whole works. And so we were we were homeschooling in the 80s for a while while she had this little dispute over my uh, uh, learning disabilities with the, with the public schools. Uh, and so during that time, I actually started a, a newsletter called The Informer, and I did that for a couple of years. And it was a Kinko's-driven type of thing. But that was my first experience with zines. Uh, my family's pretty conservative household, uh, didn't allow a lot of metal, uh, or rock related things in the house. So I didn't, uh, I didn't get exposed to a lot of the, the culture, the way other people did. I kind of had to work backwards when I got more independent in my later teens. How many issues of the informer did you make? Well, uh, I don't know the exact number, but I know I, I kept it up monthly, more or less for about two years between ages 11 and 13 spread it around to my friends and family and they seemed to love it they thought it was pretty cool and it was my first attempt at journalism and i really liked it but then when i turned 13 i got interested in the piano and that consumed my world i was just absolutely enamored by the expression that that instrument gave me and uh, you know like i said I, I i never stuck with anything for too long until i met the piano and, and i being kind of a love affair with that, that lasted into my uh, late teens, early 20s. And Billy, what were some of your early albums that you discovered that made you fall in love with Doom and Stoner music? Well, Doom and Stoner music was kind of incidental to the background of radio rock in most of my life, and I didn't really know what all the categories were or, or how the genres distinguished themselves. I got interested in metal around... Uh, age 10, 11, 12, um, had to listen to it clandestinely for a while because my, my mother and father were dead set against it. My dad is a, a minister um, and, uh, like I said, a pretty conservative household. But um, my first album was Appetite for Destruction, Guns N' Roses, and that was probably the most influential album on my taste in music and just in general. 
Uh, it just opened up the whole world of metal to me. Um, and like I said, I had to kind of listen to it unawares. We didn't have internet in those days. It was cassette tapes, CDs, things like that. And I was always under the watchful eye of my parents <laughs> until I kind of got away from, from all that. And then when I, when I got away from all that, it was definitely Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. And later came uh, St. Vitus. I actually saw them live at a concert featuring Down. And I went to see uh, you know, Phil Anselmo and company performing with Down. And I left with a love affair with St. Vitus and the whole concept of doom. And my friend at the time said, you know, this... I asked him, what do you think of St. Vitus? And he said, I, I don't see this as the kind of music that will, will stand the test of time. And of course, I have to chuckle at that now because St. Vitus have been doing their thing for, <laughs> you know, what are, are they on now, 40, 40 years or so? Um, so that's where I first discovered Doom, and that led me into these weekend excursions uh, where I would dig in to uh, whatever music I could find on the Internet. And um, so I discovered High and Fire, and then, then the flip side of the coin, Stoner Rock with uh, Caius and uh, Sasquatch and the Heavy Eyes and a bunch of others. For me, I found bands like Acid Bath and the Flower Traveling Band really made me get into the genre. How inspiring were they for you? Uh, I would say nominally so. My main entry points, or my the ones that really ignited my interest in doom metal besides st vitus um would happen to be you know that same uh, geographic location crowbar and then it took me a while to get into i hate god and it was just kind of like one after another i just developed this fascination with each band and at first it was just kind of the big names and then i i dug a lot deeper so acid bath uh and the flower traveling band definitely along that journey but they're further along Caius is actually the one that's probably most responsible, and then Windhand after that for me starting Doomed in Stone. When I heard Caius and just took a summer just going through their discography and then discovered Windhand out of Richmond, um, it was all bets off. Like I couldn't find any of my friends, um, either virtual or real, <laughs> who knew about these bands, um, who were into the style of music, and it just connected with me. So I started Doomed in Stone kind of, out of a need to connect with other people who got it, who really um, understood and appreciated this uh, new wave of uh, traditional heavy metal and rock. Can you tell me how you got involved in podcasting? Well, uh, I was a DJ for a while. That was my first independent job to kind of get me away from the folks and the family. And it was also my first exposure to uh, the music of now. Uh, it was a Christian radio station, but a lot of my worldliness from the other DJs, and this was around 95, 96. Uh, around 97, I went into the uh, U.S. Army in the infantry, got entered on active duty, uh, was discharged in 99, 2000, right before the Iraq War, uh, thankfully. And uh, uh, my ex exploration in earnest began when I got into college, and I started uh, you know, getting into all kinds of other things. Uh, and I returned to radio for a time, and I loved everything about radio. It just didn't seem to be um, an industry at the time that was growing for me. And then, of course, we know how that ended once the iPod uh, came and, and LimeWire and all these streaming services became available and eventually Spotify. And <clears throat> radio is still there. It's still hanging on, but it's in the background. And 
So around 2014, uh, once I started Domed in Stone, started connecting with other people, uh, a guy named Gary contacted me and he had a radio station online called Grip of Delusion Radio. And he asked if I would be interested in uh, doing a weekly. And I said, yes. Uh, it took me a while to really record my first show. I did you know, a few months with a online place called Brutiful uh, Radio. And then I reconnected with Gary and we got started on Grip of Delusion. And that got me started with the Doomed and Stone show in earnest. And uh, I've been continuing seven seasons ever since. How did Doomed and Stone form? And can you speak about some of the very first few compilations you came up with? So Doomed and Stone is just sort of a grassroots thing that started at just the right time and place when a lot of people like me were discovering, you know, right out of the first decade of the 2000s, this explosion in underground heavy rock and metal. A lot of it was being uh, riffed on in the style of Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, but they were doing more than just uh, a tribute type of material. They were really creating their own sound. They were taking that musical language and developing it further. And once I looked at the musicological roots of it, I discovered, okay, this is doom metal and this is stoner rock. And they kind of both grew up around the early 70s together. I started this Facebook page called Doomed and Stoned. It also kind of had a, an expression uh, just in those words about uh, an outlook on life, too, that I had at the time and, and still have to some degree. Um, the music also kind of plays into, but... Primarily, it was just a reference to those two genres, Doomed and some. And from Facebook page, everything else came. I, I attracted other people with like minds who had uh, some who, who were photographers, some who were videographers, others who wanted to write reviews. I hadn't even thought about, you know, having the gumption to create my own blog or media empire or whatever it is now. Uh, at first, it just really was a social action thing. And the big blogs at the time were the obelisk and the sledge lord um and then doomed and stone being sort of the the third wheel on that uh on that set of spokes and, and so forth so uh yeah that's how it started and and then uh the compilations came next you know just one enthusiastic step and led to another in 2015 i did uh doomed and stone in portland and that was a huge deal and then uh somebody on my team said I'd love to do Doom and Stone in Mexico, and we did that next, and we just kept going and going and going, and now it's, uh, gosh, 37 volumes. So we just keep putting them out. They're an extraordinary amount of coordination and effort. In my mind, it is documenting what other people aren't documenting, and that is uh, sort of the music of the heavy underground. And then Doom and Stone has morphed from a simple Facebook page into a full-fledged you know, journalistic enterprise where I'm also trying to document the stories of these bands in the heavy underground. And that includes album reviews, but it also involves documentary style pieces and interviews and, and that kind of thing. For you, what do you find is more beneficial for yourself when farming new bands to focus on between zines, alt weeklies, magazines, college radio and message boards or from friends and colleagues? It probably started backwards in the order that you listed. So at first it was word of mouth from friends and colleagues, and that led me to college radio, where I got in on a lot of the alt stuff in the early 2000s. And I still enjoy a lot of the new metal stuff. Um, and then that led me to online message boards and Facebook groups, led me into blogs. 
And so, um, like I said, the the big blogs at the time were Sledge Lord and the Obelisk, and they still are a huge factor in, you know, discovering new music. These days, uh, I have kind of my own pipelines, um, and that is bands reaching out to me, PR firms reaching out to me, and uh, then people submitting things on. Uh, we have a submission link on the website, and that's how I discover a lot of newer music these days. Now, your newest compilation is on Scotland. How much preparation and editing is involved in each new compilation you put out? Many, many hours. So the the biggest first big hurdle is to find someone who is from that local scene who can give me a genuine on the ground picture of the bands that are active and or the bands that maybe are inactive but still deserve to be uh, remembered and and documented. And that was kind of the case uh, with with Scotland. So I basically just put a call out to my Facebook friends who are predominantly musicians and band members and producers and things of that nature and found out there was a lot of enthusiasm around doing a compilation for Scotland and got a team together of volunteers to help me identify bands uh, and then contact bands. And I've developed a whole, you know, four page process around this now that's you know, covers every nook and cranny of the, the legalities and things like that. So we do it right. And that way we get, you know, a really broad picture of and an accurate picture of, of what the heavy underground is in at least in the, the doom metal and stoner rock world. From there, I uh, collect the submissions and review them for sound quality. Um, sometimes I have to adjust volume and the bulk of the, the work at the tail end of process is just getting it all into band getting an article written about it, getting artwork uh, commissioned, and um, and then getting it published and marketed. For you, what three compilations are you most proud of and why? Well, that's a good question. Like, uh, Obviously, there's the, the halo effect that the most recent thing you've done is going to stand out more. And I am very proud of the Doom and Stone in Scotland. I think it sounds great primarily because I – had more of a hand in curating it than I normally do. And I, I really thought if we get a lot of bands, the best way to treat it is just alphabetically and to treat it kind of like an encyclopedia and then and fans can make their own mix. You know, our Doom Stone in England compilation was huge. We had to do a sequel just to get all the bands in. Altogether, it was over 100 bands just representing, you know, the United Kingdom uh, in England. And then we did a Doom Stone in Wales, um, Doom Stone in Ireland, even before that. Um, so I'm, I'm really proud of those. But I'd say this year the process has gotten really refined. Um, we're getting some really good volunteers on board who see the same vision I do and really good art that matches that. My proudest ones would be working backwards from Doom Stone in Scotland to Doom Stone in Russia, which was an unexpected success. Um, same thing, very enthusiastic team, very enthusiastic and, and cooperative community, wonderful album art. Um, and then I'm really, really happy we did Doom and Stone in Mexico. And that one deserves a sequel for sure because it's about five, six years old. But that one documented four decades of doom metal and stoner rock in the country of Mexico. And it just was a gift to have that partnership with my uh, Latin American editor, Roman Tamayo, also of the band Venom Sambati. And he just went with gusto. I contacted all these old bands. I mean, just documented things that just weren't put together in that same kind of format so to me i feel we're kind of and i'm hoping at least that we're doing a service 
not only to fans to discover new music and the bands themselves, but also just to history. When I was in Japan, I got to travel to the Hide Museum, which was dedicated to the former ex-Japan guitarist who now has passed away. You ever make any trips to visit any sites that have historical importance for music fans? Well, I haven't done any great pilgrimages yet, but my first trip to Brazil, um, to a little city called Curitiba, uh, toward the, the south of Sao Paulo, that's where I first it just first hit me. There are huge music scenes outside the U.S. This is way before Doom and Stone, and I was still in school, and, and we did a leadership class for a couple of weeks overseas. And I just developed this love affair with Brazilian music. And that will probably be a future compilation for us. But that's when I discovered, wow, there are bands that play this sound and they do it in their own language. And they're even throwing in stylistic nuances based upon their own musical traditions, um, original instrumentation sometimes even. Straight up, you know, badass punk and, you know, death metal rockers. And uh, Brazil is just a huge wake-up call for that for me and so when i got back into the states and, and when the internet um started sprouting in the late 2000s and and Bandcamp came on board it was easier to discover things overseas so that to me was a real milestone in my musical history what was your favorite memory traveling to and attending a concert nationally or worldwide well let's see i mean it's been a joy to work again with grassroots folks to put on our own festivals. So we did our first festival in Indianapolis in 2016. Um, I also helped out with the first ever Psycho Las Vegas and helped the organizers pick a slate of bands for one of the stages there. Uh, and so being on the organizing side of things was has been really fun. And then we did a Doom and Stone in Chicago, which was amazing. I got to attend the, the second one. And that one happened in 2019, and that was probably one of my favorite musical experiences. And, and that I didn't even organize directly. It was all sort of delegated to some of my team members from the area. And I, I prefer to work area by area with people who are just connected with their scenes. I think that's that's very important to the ethos of Dunans. So, so far, I'll have to say it's been mostly our own events that has, has really electrified me. But, you know, several of the of the shows put on by um, Psycho Las Vegas have brought together bands that I never expected to see in, in my lifetime. So I've enjoyed every one of those experiences as well. What are your three most treasured albums in your personal collection? Oh, it's got to go back to Alice in Chains and to their self-titled album. A lot of people don't like that one from 1995, but it just really, really spoke to me. It's been with me. Um, a lot of people have their favorite album from when they're down and depressed, and, and that one is definitely mine. Um, especially in Oregon, things get pretty, pretty gloomy in the wintertime, so I listen to that at least once a year uh, obsessively, again and again. Uh, Soundgarden's Down on the Upside. I discovered that when I was in the military. I had some friends who kind of educated me on what was kind of the, the new thing then and there, and it was still grunge, and so I worked backwards from Down on the Upside to Super Unknown and just uh, discovered all of Soundgarden's discography from there. A lot of people don't like that album either from Soundgarden, but it's it's definitely got... So, uh, and recently Green Lung put out an album called Woodland Rights, and that one is a fantastic, almost like a rock opera 
it's so well done. It connects so well with the doom and stoner genres and blends them together seamlessly. And you can listen song after song and they just go together so well. It's just, it's such a great creative statement. That one, even though it's, it's newer, it feels more cherished in, in my collection. What is your most hallowed musical possession? My piano. I, I can't believe I had to think even a second about that. My piano. Uh, I got it um, around age 20. Um, I had a keyboard up until that time, but I I bought a, a, a Yamaha uh, slick black upright from a friend of mine um, that she'd gotten uh, this Yamaha uh, piano. She couldn't play, but it was one of those uh, disc clavers that was where the keys were wired so they could also uh, record and play things and you could buy these uh, discs for them and they would it would kind of play, you know, like one of those magic invisible pianists uh, in your living room and, and she just didn't want it anymore. So I couldn't afford it outright. It was over 10 grand, but I worked and paid it off little by little. And finally, by the time I was around 20, I paid it off with my disc jockey job and uh, I still own it to this day. Um, and you know, I don't play near as much as I used to, but uh, piano is very, very close to my heart, and I've I've put so many, many hours on that thing. It's been so therapeutic for me. Um, I'll, I'll always love the piano, even if it's I won't say it's not a rock instrument. It's been a rock instrument almost from the beginning, but it's not as well integrated with the music I listen to as you know guitar or something like that. And guitar was, you know, originally what I wanted to play, but because my sister was learning piano, but I just love the sound so much and the expressive possibilities that uh, I've been playing it for over 20 years now. What is your favorite urban legend or ghost story from Portland or Oregon in general? Yeah, well, Portland and Oregon in general, they're known for a lot of ghost stories. There are so many. A lot of it is connected with the underground. There's an underground in tunnels in Portland where they used to... uh, colloquially Shanghai people and what that was an expression at the time that meant these uh, gangs would take people from the bars who were all drunk and kidnap them take them through the tunnels in the 1800s and put them on boats and they'd wake up from their hangover and they were on their way to Shanghai uh, as sort of a forced uh, crew so there are legends that you can go into those tunnels at night and or anytime really and and catch a ghost or two I've yet to visit them myself. I've always been fascinated by it. Um, I'm more actually fascinated closer to home that my dad, who has never really been a big believer in ghosts, suddenly became a paranormal fanatic a few years ago. Um, he pastors a small church that used to be a one-room schoolhouse back in the 1800s and has been converted into a, a church and not really changed that much since then. And he has gone in there at nights and claimed that he has heard the rustle of like an old-fashioned 1800s hoop skirt that he smelled perfume. We had a dog at the time. He used to love to go into the church sanctuary when he was over there, you know, studying or, or copying a bulletin for the next Sunday. And one night she just refused to go in and kind of tuck her table, tail between her leg and, and left. And since then, my dad has had at least a dozen different type of paranormal experiences on the parish property And then this coming from my dad, who's always been a very rational, you know, down-to-earth type of person, uh, has never spoken about ghosts, never told a ghost story. Uh, He's suddenly a big believer, and he believes there may be some 
Indian sacred sites or some uh, atrocities that may have happened to the Native Americans around there, which we don't know of any, but he thinks that's the, the theory. And there's places in the yard where, you know, trees and shrubs consistently won't grow. And he claims he's, you know, heard or seen um, Native American uh, artifacts or, or movements or things that have just kind of come and gone. So I, I'm always skeptical. I haven't seen a ghost yet, so I don't know. Uh, then, of course, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, uh, the legends are all around this part of the world. And Oregon, no less than Washington, we're privy to the big northwest forests. And people have claimed to have a lot of encounters with with uh, Bigfoot at night. Um, final words, then? Final words. Well, you know, I always tell people to to doom on. And I don't know if that's a common colloquial state saying in our scene or not, but it feels like, uh, like I said, doomed and stone has become kind of an expression of an attitude or a way of life. And doom to me is a sort of stoic acceptance uh, that life is sometimes, and for some people often shit. It often doesn't, pieces don't connect. And it's important in those times to have musical expression that really identifies with what you're feeling and and that is doom metal. And then on the flip side, stoner rock is when the times are great and you're feeling great. And both are just so essential to one's life, you know, even if I might say spiritually speaking, that, you know, if, if you haven't discovered doom metal uh, and stoner rock, I would encourage you to to dig in. And, and whether it's through Doomed and Stoned or some other avenue, you know, find a band you connect with, and I think you'll find it a, in some ways, a deeper, more sustaining genre of music than others. So that's all encapsulated in my little saying at the end of every podcast, doom on until we meet again. This has been an interview with Billy Goat on Sunday, March 28th, 2021 by Nick Perkel.